All right, welcome. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 17 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, if you just go all the way to the right, to the book of Revelation, and then you make a left turn, it's two or three books before the book of Revelation. We've been walking through the book of 1 Peter over the last few months, and this will take us up through Easter. Uh, ambitiously, optimistically, I'd hoped to get through 1 and 2 Peter before Easter, but I don't think that's going to happen. So uh, we're just going to call it 1 Peter, and we're going to take this right up through Easter, and it'll be a challenge to get through the next few chapters uh, before that time. So that's the plan and my ambitious goal this morning is to take us through verse 17. Now, chapter 3, verses 8 through 17, they're sort of a summary passage. It starts with the word finally. And uh, so what he's saying is everything up until this point is going to be summarized um, in this next paragraph. And what Peter has been doing is he's been writing to a small group of Christians uh, in a specific region. And in that area, they're experiencing a lot of suffering. They're experiencing a lot of persecution. And uh, so his general command is he wants to encourage them. They're struggling, there's persecution, there's suffering. Uh, There's a lot going on in this small bodies of believers in this area of what we now know as Turkey. And so in this area, he's written to them and he's generally encouraging them to be holy, to live holy lives, to be loving to each other, uh, and to be witnesses to the outside world as you suffer in a way that lets people see Uh, how much of a difference Jesus Christ has made in your life. So this morning, I can sort of ask you, are you suffering? Are you experiencing a trial? Are you under temptation? Are you experiencing pressure from the culture or from the outside world, from your neighbors, from your family members, from co-workers, maybe at your workplace? Is there pressure on you because of your witness to Jesus Christ? Not just because um, your personality, although you may suffer persecution for your personality. I don't know uh, if that fits for you, but, but you can suffer in a lot of ways having nothing to do with Jesus. But he's specifically saying, are you suffering because of your faith and witness for Jesus Christ? Uh, so if that's you, you can pay close attention to Peter's words this morning. This, uh, this passage that we're about to look at, verses 8 through 17, uh, can almost be built up in this way. Um, what do you like when all the pressure is on? Not what you think you would be like in your mind when the pressure is on, but what do you really like when the pressure is on? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and maybe there was a confrontation involved or maybe it was a debate or a heated argument and like four hours later you think, oh, I should have said that, right? In your mind you come up with the perfect answer or the perfect comeback or the perfect argument. Or have you ever sort of built yourself up to a situation thinking, if this ever happened to me, I would react this way or that way? Has that ever happened to you? Uh, There was a time when I was 25 or 26 uh, and I was working at a church and occasionally the storms in Oklahoma would set off the alarm, right? And and I I lived closest to the church and I was kind of the low guy on the totem pole. I was one of, I think, 12 pastors and so... It was my job when that happened 
to go and check the troubled like backup battery system and reset the alarm. And I always got nervous because, um, you know, it was a big old building and, yeah, I don't know, it was in a rougher neighborhood and there were sometimes people would sort of sneak into the building and that's why the alarm would go off. Sometimes it would just be the, the backup battery would fail and the alarm would go off. Or sometimes it was just a storm. But for a variety of reasons, the, the alarm would go off and it would be my job to go through. And, and so as I would punch in the code and walk through the building just to make sure that all the doors were secure, uh, you know, I would just kind of build it up in my mind. Like if somebody walks around the corner, um, I'm going to... I'm going to throw a punch, or I'm going to block a, fi- a th- fist, or whatever. I'm going to, if somebody tries to kick me or tackle me, I can handle this, right? And so I would sort of mentally boost myself um, for any circumstance. And so I would walk through the hallways sort of loud and confidently, and I would almost try to project, you know, some confidence uh, into the area so that if something happened, I knew that I could handle myself, um, and this happened a dozen times, probably every year. And, and if you had a secret video uh, at this moment, you, you would still laugh today. But there was one moment when this scenario happened, and I'm walking through the building, and I round a corner, and I bump right into uh, uh, our little Guatemalan custodian who would come in uh, two nights a week, right? And so she's walking this way, and I'm walking this way, and... And as we sort of round the corner at the perfect time, as the lights had gone out and as the storm, she was making her way to the alarm system. I was, we hit each other perfectly, almost nose to nose, right? We almost bumped heads. And I let out this shriek of a cry uh, and sort of found myself saying, what is that noise? And as I, as I sort of came to, I realized that I'm on the ground huddled, making the noise, I'm the one who made the noise. And no matter how much I had bolstered myself and acted like I could handle any situation, when it came to this five foot two woman who was in the church in the middle of the night cleaning, I had nothing. There was nothing there. There was no courage. There was no karate move. There was no blocking. There were no fists. It was just me in the fetal position making some weird screaming noise. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, maybe not that exact situation, but, but in your mind, you're so much bigger or you're so much more or you're going to respond in, in such a, a brave way or a courageous way or a stronger way or when confrontation comes, you might think, uh, when the pressure is on, I'm going to defend myself or I'm going to defend the faith or when someone slanders the gospel, I'm going to stand up or when someone says something about my family, I'm going to be more bold or, or in some way, maybe you've imagined in your mind a scenario that you will respond perfectly. Well, this is Peter, right? On the night that Jesus was um, betrayed, Peter said, even though everybody's going to deny you and walk away from you, I'm not going to. But what happened within 12 hours, right? Before the the rooster crowed, what Peter had built up in his mind of what he would do under the suffering and the trial and the predicted betrayal, Peter flopped, he failed, he walked away. Not just once and not just twice, but three times, Peter blew it. Man, haven't we been there before? Haven't we been in a situation where in our mind we want to respond a certain way, but when reality hits, we just don't. We just don't. 
Well, that's the background of what Peter is writing to. And Peter is describing a pressure situation. And he's telling them, this is how you should respond under the worst pressure situation that you're going through. This is, this is the goal. This is the benchmark. This is the, this is the line that you need to rise to under pressure, under suffering, under persecution. So let's read it together. Starting in verse 8. It should be on the screen for us. If you have glasses, maybe you can read that. But uh, I'll try to make that bigger next week. But, but you should have a Bible or a phone or you can just listen. Verse 8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. Count the times I say the word evil, and count the times I say the word good as we go through. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. That's just the word that means insult. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 10, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, all right, there's good, let him keep his tongue from evil, there's the third evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? There's good again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, there's good, so those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, that's our main text, and the big picture, the main idea of this text uh, is what kind of person are you going to be under suffering? When the pressure's on, when all, the, all is at stake, and when everything is coming at you in terms of your faith and your belief in Jesus Christ, when all the pressure is on you, how will you respond? What are you going to be like in that moment? Uh, so let's figure out what this means. And the first thing we need to do when we come to a text like this, or a list like this, is we need to sort of reframe the context. I just read that, and from you know 2017, uh, almost 2,000 years after, it's sort of hard to miss the way this was written. So imagine Peter uh, running into the room and shouting these verses. All right, if Peter were to stand in front of you and to loudly um, say this exhortation to you, that if he were to say, finally, you guys, be united and have sympathy, have brotherly love for each other, and be humble and tender-hearted whenever you face these kinds of persecutions and temptations. As you go through this uh, experience, you want to um, do good and live a long life. And, and all these things he's quoting from Psalm 34. He's going to describe all these things. But imagine Peter up here saying it to you. That should give us some idea of the context. But, but even if you can't imagine Peter saying this, let me just try to fit the context in this way. I'm going to need uh, five 
volunteers. Let me pick on five people, all right? All right, I'll pick on you one at a time, all right? Uh, London, you raise your hand first. Um, let's say that five people that I'm going to ask to stand are experiencing some sort of suffering and persecution. So London, why don't you stand up? London, uh, let's say that you have um, a property, all right? And in this property, maybe you have a store or a business or something like that on a good property. Maybe it's a corner lot um, and you're selling things on this property, okay? Can you picture that? Sure, you can, because you're a smart kid. Uh, London has this property, and, and at some point, London interacts with a group of believers, and he gives his life to Christ, and he starts going to a church. Now, the people on either side of his property find out that he has given his life to Christ, and that he is no longer supporting the local business and economy. And so, because of your faith in Jesus, they seize your property, right? They take your property. All right, so here's London in church who no longer has a corner store and no longer has a corner property. All right, so keep standing. All right, that's London's situation. Let me have a second volunteer. All right, Sophie, why don't you stand up? Sophie's a, a volunteer. She's going to be our second scenario. She's standing, and Sophie has also put her faith in Jesus Christ. She has given her life to Christ, and there are changes that are taking place in Sophie's life. Uh, her friends are noticing there's something different about you. And she begins to tell them, it's because I met these believers and they told me about Jesus, and so I've placed my faith in Him. And so she begins to tell people about Jesus. Now at some point, she tells somebody and they don't respond well to her message. And so they make up something that Sophie has done wrong and Sophie gets arrested. She's arrested and she's put in jail. So Sophie is not in our church this morning, she's in jail somewhere. All right, let me have a third witness. Uh, all right, uh, Lily, go ahead and stand up. Uh, Lily is our third situation. Uh, Lily is a mother, pretend, all right? Lily is a mother, and she has children, and her children go to a great school, and uh, they're uh, all looking for scholarships to go to college to the local university uh, one of her children maybe because they're smart, and another one maybe because they're a good athlete, but you have a few children who are facing good opportunities. But because you go to church every week, word has gotten around to university officials uh, that you're one of those Christians, and so without warning, your scholarships are pulled, and your children no longer have opportunities because of your faith in Jesus. Without explanation, your children will now be going, uh, trying to find a regular job if they can get one. But opportunities for your kids are being denied because you believe in Jesus. Let's look for a fourth opportunity. Let me get a man, a guy, a strong guy. Uh, uh, all right, Elijah, stand up. Here's Elijah. Elijah's a member of our church. And uh, Elijah uh, was sharing the gospel at his workplace uh, when some guys heard him and they, they go to the local temple, which worships a different idol. And because of Elijah's witness, they realize that Elijah is no longer going with them to the temple to worship those idols, but he's actually speaking out against that. And so one day after work, you clock out and you walk around the corner to your car, maybe on a dark night, and out of nowhere, somebody puts a bag over your head and they start beating you, right? They start hitting you and, and you end up with a few broken bones and blood on your face and somebody finds you and, and they take you home. So you have been beaten badly and for the next three months you're unable to work 
while your bones are reset. Okay? The real life situation there. Uh, number five, let's get a fifth uh, volunteer. Anybody else want to stand? Let me get all my volunteers to stand. All right, Oliver, stand up here, buddy. You, um, you Oliver, have made a stand for Jesus uh, among your friends, and they have repeatedly made fun of you for your witness to Jesus. And your suffering is a little bit different. You're more likely to not speak out about Jesus around those people because they have been teasing you about your faith. And you have been repeatedly pressured to deny Jesus under those circumstances. Now, can you imagine five people in our church? These guys are all standing. Sophie, Lily, Oliver, London, and Elijah. They're all experiencing this, right? Is that too hard to imagine something like that taking place in the first century church? Absolutely not. Those were probably tame examples when you think about Nero rounding up believers and putting them in the Colosseum. You can sit down, guys. Thank you. Uh, When you think about Nero taking believers and putting them in a Colosseum and unleashing lions because of their witness to Jesus, because they refused to bow down and worship. Now, how do we, as a body of believers, now that we understand the context a little better, how do we support London? How do we support Oliver? And how do we support Elijah? And how are we supposed to respond to them? Well, listen to the text again with that mindset. Peter says, in that situation, that you should all be united. You should all have likeness of mind. You should all have this likeness of mind. You should be thinking the same way. The first thing that the enemy wants us to do is he wants us to be divided, right? He wants for some of you to say, well, maybe it's London's fault. Maybe London's the reason why they took his property. Maybe it has nothing to do with Jesus. And so within the body of believers, we're all thinking different things about each other. Rather than having a united, like-minded response that says, Jesus promised that suffering would come. Jesus promised that we should take up our cross and carry it. And that if Jesus suffered and experienced this, then it's no doubt that London is. We should be prayerfully supporting London uh, under those circumstances. Not being divided. We need to understand and be united in our mind. What else did he say that we should be? He said that not only should we be like-minded, but that we should have sympathy. That's uh, two Greek words, sum and pathos, which is just with feeling. Uh, This idea of with feeling is the formal expression of pity or sorrow for someone else's misfortune. So instead of being hardened and hostile toward Elijah and his broken bones, we should be sympathetic. We should have an expression of feeling toward Elijah's situation. He can't work for three months. We should be putting ourselves in that situation saying, what would we do and how would we want people to support us in that situation? Peter continues uh, to have a tender heart, to have brotherly love and a humble mind. So in all these ways, he's describing how we as the body should support one another and strengthen one another and help one another in the midst of these difficult circumstances. Now he describes it in the context of good and evil, okay? Good and evil, right? This good versus evil idea. And I had you count how many times we said the word good and how many times I said the word evil. Who has a good count of that? Uh, you said evil six times and good five times. All right, close. Other way around. Close. <laughs> um, 
Six and six. That's exactly right. In the text, there were six times the word good was used. Six times the word evil was used. Now, would you have ever put this... When you think good and evil in this epic battle of um, the forces of evil and the forces of good, would you have put it in this context? Uh, Probably not. When you think of the greatest evil and the greatest good, you may not have thought that it could be framed in a context like this. And also... As he's mentioning good and evil, most of the actions that he's talking about have to do with your mouth. Has to do with the way you speak. Has to do with the way you speak. He Listen to the way evil is described. It's described as vengeful. As taking revenge. He says, don't be... Um, don't be... Uh, There it is in verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That's a vengeful spirit. Um, Don't insult for insult. That's how you speak. How you speak. Uh, So evil incarnate is vengeful. It's insulting. It's mouthy is probably a good way that we can put it. How how many of you have met somebody who's just mouthy? They're just... They, they're negative, and they speak harshly and bitterly and angrily. Would you have called that evil? Right? No, we wouldn't have thought that. But this is how Peter is describing it as uh, vengeful, insulting, mouthful, uh, mouthy. He says deceitful, that is, they tell lies. Harmful, slandering, and insulting. That's the way evil is described in these ten verses. And we wouldn't probably have described evil in that way. But isn't that something that evil can be something done more with your mouth? Didn't James say that the tongue is like a spark that sets a whole forest on fire? That a rudder on a ship is small, but it directs the entire course of a ship? Just in that way, your tongue can be a world of evil filled with what? How did James describe it? Deadly poison. Listen, your mouth contributes more to evil than your than anything else on a real daily practical way your mouth contributes more to evil your words contribute more to the wickedness in this world than anything else day in day out right day in day out evil looks like this an unrestrained mouth well look at the good Look at the good that is mentioned in these 10 verses. The good things. The, the good things are when you bless when those insult you. That is, you speak encouragement. You speak positivity. You speak help. You speak hope. You, you bless when you're insulted. That you have a restrained mouth. He says, if you want to love life and see good days, in verse 10. Which is just... By the way, it was a close tie for the big idea of this text. Um, if you want to love life and see good days. If I just asked you, hey, do you want to love life and see good days? Everyone of you, would you be like, yeah, sign me up for that. I love life and I want to see really good days. This is the idea that he's describing is how we can be um, under pressure and, and how we can live this way, but also how we can live life and see good days. And he says to bless when people insult you. Just to use your tongue to speak hope and life and encouragement and strength and joy and peace. That if someone walks up to you and says something negative, that you're not in a south kind of way saying, bless your heart. You know, that also has a negative way. But but in a real way, you're blessing them and you're encouraging them. A restrained mouth. That is, there is a filter on your mouth that doesn't 
listen, actually let some words go through, right? I, I told one of my kids at one point, there's a librarian in your mind. And, and uh, whenever a topic comes up, um, that librarian runs to get the file and, uh, and it comes out and it sort of dumps all the information from that. Let's say you want to talk about anything, I don't know, soccer or something. And so the person in your mind runs, they get the file on soccer. And some people just tell you everything there is to know about soccer. And once the file is empty, they just stop talking, right? Well, this is saying that a person who wants to live a long life and a good life, not that they ramble about soccer, but that they understand the value of a restrained mouth. They, they're able to hold back and not say everything that they think and not say everything that they feel. Isn't that a good quality? It's a great quality to not have to express everything verbally, to have restraint in your mouth, that if someone says something negative about you, you bite your tongue, right? You just put a stop. And if you can't say anything good, your mother used to say, right, don't say anything at all. So the blessed life, the good life that's defined in these 10 verses is they bless, they have restraint on their mouth, they're repentant, that means they, they hold back from, um, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for as to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, keep his tongue from evil, that's restraint, keep his lips from speaking deceit, that's telling lies. Uh, verse 11, let him turn away from evil. That's repentance. That's repentance. That's actions that are sinful. And the Bible's continued command is that if you confess with your mouth, uh, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, nine. This constant daily confession and repentance you want to see this good life it's repentance he says uh, that you are to do good deeds to seek peace and not just seek peace but to pursue it have you ever had an argument with someone a disagreement and in your heart you're you're saying i'm ready to make peace but i'm not going to go to them if they come to me and they apologize under those conditions then i will seek peace the command here is that you seek peace that is you're actively waiting and ready to initiate peace. Not only that, but you're seeking it out. You're pursuing it. You're pursuing them and saying, hey, this relationship is important enough to me that, that we need to have some peace between us. And I, and I want to sit down with you and, and just make some progress toward peace. Seek peace and pursue it. That you're righteous, that you're zealous for good, that you have a good conscience, that you're gentle, that there's respect and honor. Isn't that interesting? Good versus evil? It's a different way of looking at good versus evil. But Peter says, in a real practical, day-in, day-out way, evil and good looks like those two lists. All right, let's, uh, let's move on now that we've seen this. Um, how are we supposed to respond? If, we, if we're not quite up to the standard, if that's the standard of how we're supposed to live, if that's the character that describes you. By the way, if you were Elijah or if you were London or Sophie or Lily or Oliver and you were in one of our circumstances, you would want a friend like this to show up at your door, wouldn't you? All right, if you were Elijah, you would want somebody who was humble, that was tenderhearted, that was um, sympathetic to your situation, that was doing good deeds. Maybe they're making him breakfast and lunch and they're coming and helping him uh, you know, with his 
work and maybe they're providing for his rent. Maybe London is out of work now and so he needs some help. You would want your body of believers to be this for you, wouldn't you? How many people wouldn't want this, right? You would expect this from your circle of Christian friends. So this is what Peter is getting at. Uh, so the, one of the final things that I'll mention from this passage is verse 15. In chapter 3, verse 15, the idea is that you should be prepared to speak of Jesus when people see how well you respond to your suffering. All right, so in our situation, we've got Oliver whose friends are ripping on him because he believes in Jesus. And his continued temptation is just to not talk about Jesus anymore. It's uncomfortable. There's pressure. There, there's friendships on the line. And so the command for Oliver, for all of us, but the command for Oliver is to know what you believe and to be able to articulate it in such a way that, uh, that you're doing it with gentleness and respect. So it might look something like this. Uh, he may, uh, in a way, sort of pat, kick, pat, which is uh, the way we describe how to handle confrontation, is that, hey, I appreciate our friendship. I love you guys, and I've enjoyed you know, all the memories that we have together. And here's the kick, right? That's the pat. Here's the kick. The kick is, I've given my life to Jesus. Jesus Christ has changed my life. He's given me hope. He's given me peace. He's given me joy. He's forgiven me of all my sins. And He's loved me like no one else has loved me. He loved me in such a way that He died on the cross for my sins. And that has meant so much to me personally, Oliver would say, that I, I'm going to continue to follow Him and stand up for Him. Now our friendship, here's the other pat, our friendship means a lot to me, but if you think that by speaking against me or pressuring me that I'm going to stop following Jesus, you're wrong. Now, isn't that a nice three-minute with gentleness and respect and honoring way for you to stand up and describe what you believe? Is that hard for any of you to say? It is if it's not what you think or what you believe or if you're not being supported. It's a hard thing to say, but it's a very clear thing. I'm going to keep following Jesus no matter how much pressure. Uh, London, no matter if you take all my property, I'm going to still follow Jesus. Sophie, if I'm in jail for the next six years, I'm still going to follow Jesus. That's the idea that you're able to articulate your faith. That you're able to articulate. Now let me just close with this idea. Uh, Whenever you come to a a list of virtues like this, there's kind of a warning. There's a few lists of virtues in Scripture, right? Philippians, whatever is lovely, whatever is noble. Think about these things. Uh, James, uh, add to your faith perseverance and perseverance hope and endurance. Uh, There's all these sort of lists that you come to. And Here's what happens practically. You come to a a list in Scripture, and there's sort of this temptation to say, all right, here's something practical to do. And if I can just check these boxes, if I can just sort of do these things, your faith can turn into a moralistic faith. And this is, the temptation is greatest for those of us with kids. So if you have kids, wake up for a second. (laughs) Right, if I put you to sleep, but, but wake up for a second and just kind of pay attention that there's a way that we can impart our faith to our children in such a way that teaches them to be, listen, good moral people. A survey was taken about 10 years ago of 3,000 teenagers about their faith. And the overwhelming majority of these 3,000 teenagers that described their faith had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus 
and the Bible and had everything to do with living a moral life. Now, let me listen to this quote from Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales. How many of you have seen VeggieTales? Phil Vischer walked away from VeggieTales, that entire empire, and came to this conviction. He acknowledged that when I looked back at the previous 10 years and realized that I had spent 10 years of my life trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity, right? You can think of all these VeggieTales that never really talk about Jesus and suffering and persecution and witnessing for their faith. They never talk about atonement. They never talk about forgiveness in those ways. It's always kind of a nice moral lesson that he came to this conviction that for 10 years I've been trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And he said that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or hey kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity, it's morality. Now back to our two researchers that studied 3,000 teenagers. They conglomerated all their beliefs and came out with this term called moral therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism, the authors found that many young people believed in all these moral ideas that weren't necessarily exclusive to Christianity. And they described that combination of beliefs as moralistic therapeutic deism. And these are sort of the tenets of that. That a God exists who created everything and ordered the world and he sort of watches over human life on earth. The second idea behind that belief is that God wants people to be good and nice and moral and fair to each other and nice in such a way that all religions are okay as long as you're good to each other. Number three, the central goal of your life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. The fourth idea is that God does not need to be particularly involved in someone's life except when God is really needed to solve a major problem. And the fifth thing is good people go to heaven when they die. Now, doesn't this just sound like cultural, vanilla religion that has... You can take Jesus completely out of that. Matter of fact, many of you may be a result of 10 years of VeggieTales and moral living. You can have a Christianity that has nothing to do with Jesus and you can live a good biblical moral life. And the temptation when you come to a list like this is just to put these practices in place so that you can be a better person. That's the idea. But let me, let me tell you this. Peter would never have given you a list like this and removed Jesus from it. The suffering that they're experiencing has everything to do with the fact that they are naming Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. People don't suffer for being good, moral, happy people. People suffer because they're proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and that He died on the cross because of your sin and my sin. I had a conversation 